You are listening to Season 5 of Future Ecologies. Okay. Um, should we jump in right where we left off? Sure. Uh, just for new listeners, my name is Mendel. And I'm Adam. And this episode is a continuation of the last one about what post-disaster recovery looks like when there is no post to the disaster. Just one crisis after another. Fires, floods, landslides, you name it. So this is part five of our series, On Fire. Don't worry, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning to understand what's going on here. But if you haven't already, you may want to listen to the previous episode to get oriented. That's on fire, underwater. Okay, I think that covers it for housekeeping. Yeah, so when we left off, I was in a truck climbing these awful dirt roads through the 2021 Sparks Lake fire footprint, right outside of the Skeechison Indian Bands Reserve. The landscape had been burned two years previously, so the trees were all just charred little sticks, and there was a rich understory of wildflowers and medicinal plants that were coming back up. Plants which kept distracting you from your conversation with Sam. Indeed. And that's Sam Draney of Skeechison Natural Resources. Also in the truck, Sarah Dixon Hoyle from UBC. And also from Down Under. As we were driving, Sam was telling me about how she became a fire watcher. It goes back to the 2017 Elephant Hill fire which you explored in detail in the last episode. And at the time, folks in Skeechison felt like they weren't getting up-to-date reports about the progress of the fire from BC Wildfire, which is not good when your community is right next to an out-of-control megafire. So they decided to send out a team of their own to track the fire and report back to the community. And this is where our story picks up. There was just one problem. What was that? they were missing a technical person. So I got to go out as the tech, run the iPad, take the pictures, take the track, and then they never pried me back off of that fire. I was on it, like, no, you need me, I have to run the iPad. (laughs) That's where the the team between me and Daryl really developed. He's got the cultural mindset. He's a hunter, he grew up on the land his whole life. He knows every road, every gully, how the wind works in every gully. Who's Daryl? Daryl is the man that we've driven all of the way out into the bush to see. And can you believe it? We're just arriving right now. Convenient. Oh, amazing. We get out at this open meadow, surrounded by a mix of green and black trees above a lake. This is Sedge Lake. So this up here is one of our potato plots, so the Spring Beauty Indian potato. Just up the hill, there are some guys with a little excavator installing fence posts around the patch that Sam is pointing to. They're protecting a number of different experimental plots. Kind of like crop trials? Yeah, but for native plants. And man, I really wish I knew that you could install fence posts with an excavator. Would have saved me (laughs) a lot of back pain. You live and learn. Anyway. Pretty immediately, we're greeted by the man that we came here to see. Hi, Daryl. I'm Sarah. Daryl. Nice to meet you. Adam. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. You know me. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> My name is Daryl Peters. I'm from Deadman's Creek Valley. People call it Skeetchison now. Oh, so you finally got someone to introduce themselves. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so tell me more about Daryl. Well, Daryl is kind of the do-it-all guy for Skeetchison Natural Resources. Be it fisheries, forestry, ranching. No matter what comes up, I'm always involved. That's what I do for the band, territorial patrol, going through all our whole territory and then going into the overlap to the other bands and seeing who's doing the work and who's doing the ranching in the areas, who's doing the mining. And that's how I got to know everybody all in a great big circle. So naturally, he was one of the folks that Skeetchison sent out to track the Elephant Hill Fire in 2017. And Sam came along. To run the iPad. Yeah, to do the tech stuff. And I followed Daryl on the fires. I was just right there behind him, especially on Elephant Hill. I felt like a little baby deer, just following behind. I was so excited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> learning so much and just, like, continued learning. So what were they actually there to do? They were there to be boots on the ground and eyes on the fire because they felt like they were being left out of the loop. We felt like we weren't getting up-to-date information on what was happening, where the fire was going. So we were actually going out and actively GPSing the edge of the fire so we knew how close it was getting to a reserve so we could make a call on when we were going to evacuate, what are we going to do to protect ourselves. Because in any of the recent fires, we weren't going to back down. We weren't going to leave. We weren't going to leave our homes to be protected by somebody else that maybe doesn't have the same values, let alone our own values out on the land and us, you know, being out and using it actively. So I was able to map the fire daily, map the fire line, show the data we were collecting in a way people can understand it, and just really latched on to Daryl and Elephant Hill and didn't let go. But I, that's where Firewatch, that's what it is for me, is just actively watching the fire going to the head of it and yeah taking our gps points and watching what fuel it's taking up and which wind directions and knowing the time of day of where things are going how your weather's in effect that's what i've learned from my grandmother and watch and listen and record in your mind of where things are going how long it takes because when you have different fuel loads the the fire travels at different time lengths, and that's when it curls up into the trees. That's why you see some of the trees. I'll just chime in here to say that Daryl spoke in great detail and at length about the many different factors that he's considering when he's watching a fire and making judgments about how it's going to move, where it's going to go. It's so much knowledge. And probably too much detail for this conversation. Yeah, and I think Sam summed it up really nicely. It's like actively using our traditional ecological knowledge to make calls, mm -hmm. to help our community make choices. Guardians of the land is who we are, because that's where we naturally come from. And as I was standing there, listening to Sam and Daryl go back and forth, I couldn't help but imagine how I would feel watching a fire that was barreling towards my community. So I asked them about it. It's a huge mix of emotions. I connect very spiritually to fire. 
Uh, Elephant Hill was a learning experience for me. I fell in love with fire on that. The way it moves, the way it acts. I always connected it to a woman's spirit. She puts on a performance, she dances, then she goes to sleep at night. Sparks Lake again, really spiritual connection. I understood what it was doing. I agreed with what it was doing. It was reclaiming our land for us. It was restarting the succession. Tremont, that's a different monster. It was robotic, it was mismanaged. That was a mass amount of burns that kept awakening a fire that to me was trying to go to sleep. It was tired, but the back burns just kept going wrong. They weren't taking input from Skeechiston or the ranchers, and we've all been on the land our whole lives. And they were just lighting stuff up that didn't need to get lit up. So you go from understanding what's happening to just feeling empty on the inside because what we live on is now gone. Hold on, I'm a little confused. What, what made the Tremont fire so different from Sparks Lake and Elephant Hill? Weren't Sparks Lake and Tremont burning around the same time, just on two different sides of the Thompson River? Yeah, um, from my understanding from Sam and Daryl, there were a number of things, but a big part was that a different set of folks from BC Wildfire were in charge of the response on Tremont than at Sparks Lake. And at first they didn't even want Skeechison involved. The head guy didn't want us to go work in there or be part of it, and I was like, well, This is our territory, this is our home, this is our place, and you're telling me that I cannot go there. I just went back to the traditional rule of this is our land, our home, our jurisdiction. He was First Nations too, and then I just told him, I says, well, you're First Nations, you should know where your territory starts and ends, right? And he said, yes. I says, well, that's what I'm doing too. I'm overriding what you want just for the government table. Back to my traditional rule to be the keeper of the land, to look after stuff. So that's when they let us back on the fire. But from their telling, once they got back onto the fire after this delay, they were run ragged, just trying to deal with what they perceived to be mistakes that BC Wildfire was making in their response. For example, backburns lit at the wrong time of day, in the wrong place, or even the wrong side of the mountain. And it was like me and Sam were just checkerboarding all over the areas. It was like, you go be lookout over there, I'll take this fire over here, get control here. You go scout for me in the other areas to see what had to be looked after in the proper manner. And once they let us do that, then we started getting control on the fire and keeping it away from the people's houses and we started saving a lot and capitalizing in areas. That's when everything got better for us is when we actually started listening to our information and what we wanted to bring to the table. And eventually, of course, the 2021 Tremont and Sparks Lake fires burnt themselves out. But they took a huge toll on the land and on everyone who was involved with the response. I was emotionally done after the last set of wildfires. Is it okay to call that burnout? Is that all right? It is. It was burnout. (laughs) I still am. I I took a six-month leave, and I just tried to completely check out. But 
In that six months, I did a lot of soul searching. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. I could have went and been on the pipeline or been bartending or whatever, but this is where I'm meant to be. This is my journey. I feel like I'm meant to be a warrior for the land. And I can't imagine how some of the other community members feel. There's just been a huge change within our own community, it feels like, since the fires. I just hope it changes for the better soon. What, what kind of change is she talking about? The kind of change when most of your territory and your economic base have just gone up in smoke in the span of a few years. As soon as the fires came through, it just kind of burnt us out of house and home again. And now we're restarting of where we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Seeing it from that aspect to this aspect now is a big change for me. And like growing up here and having it all green and now it's just burnt to matchsticks. That sounds devastating. But the thing about fire watching is that they see the damage and the loss and the changes. But afterwards, at least in some places, they also see the regeneration. I call plants my friends. So after Sparks Lake in Tremont, when I finally was allowed to go back into the bush, I went out with the girl I was training and I was I was so excited to see my friends, where I didn't even do much work that day. I was like, we got to harvest. We got to spend time with them. We need to get reacquainted and see how they're doing. And, you know, I still have that same view that every spring I get out, I get to go see my friends again. And throughout this whole cycle of wildfire and recovery, they've been building their capacity to keep boots on the ground in their territory. Before, we only used to be just a small, tiny crew of three or four people like this getting out to do a whole bunch of work. And now it's like 22 to 30 of us. So, for example, with the Skeetchison Natural Resource Department, in addition to the cultural heritage and the archaeological work, the ecological studies that they do, they've got a territorial patrol that keeps an eye on the land. Before and after the fires, there's a huge amount of pressure on their territory from hunters, recreation, ranching, fishing. And so Daryl and Sam and their team are always on the lookout. Okay, you're on that area, I'm on this area. You watch that side, I watch this side. As soon as we switch sides, you watch that side, I watch this side. And these are the key things we look for. So mm. that's how we look after each other. And then even Though there's still lots of room for improvement, it sounds like there is a lot more conversation and collaboration across the region than there had been in the past, before the megafires. Because we all have good points, and when you get them all aligned, you can accomplish a lot of good things. But when you're not aligned, the things just get jumped around. You blame each other, oh, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. Well, maybe we should have better communication to get things in order. So now with these mass burns, people have had to really think about, well, what's my partner doing or what's my neighbor doing? And I've seen more people coming to sit together at one table and learning more. We're learning more from each other to move forward in hopefully a good way to where we don't have to ask. We are still here. We are still stewards. We are still practicing the traditional ecological knowledge that's been 
gifted to us, but we're open to that uh, collaboration. And we hope that people are open to that from us because we're still here. We're always going to be here. Like I said to every ministry guy on the fire, we're always here. We're always watching. And now the stress is how do you manage these areas so that they aren't put back to the same state as they were before the fire. So how do you manage these areas so they don't get back to the same state that they were before the fires? Well, uh, <laughs> so you know how um, the last episode we were talking about kind of the immediate recovery efforts after the fire? Yeah. Rebuilding fences, restoring fire guards, and salvage harvesting? Sure, yeah. That's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what this land needed after the fires. And Sam and Daryl and Skeetchison Natural Resources are dreaming much bigger. This might not surprise you at all, but one of the most important tools that they've been using is... Hmm. Cultural fire. Exactly. Daryl started doing burns on the Skeetchison Reserve back in the early 2000s. As soon as they said you were going to get charged for burning, I was like, no, I want to start this and start it as a presence so that I have my traditional rights the way my grandmother and them did through generation to generation. And that's why I really, really wanted to bring fire back to the land because that's our key and that's the one that always saved us. And this actually surprised me a little bit to hear, but at first, even Skeetchison folks were a little bit nervous about Daryl's burns because it had been so long. When I first did a few prescribed burns closer to the communities. People were scared, didn't have the proper education, and they didn't believe in what we were doing. And I was like, I'm only trying to make things better here for us. That just shows how recent cultural burning is back to our community. Because like, I've only learned from Daryl. I've only got to practice and do this under Daryl where I've got the confidence to start doing it on my own in my own hay fields, where I'm now restrained by my property line. I'm not at Daryl's level to be trusted to go out and do community burns, although I'm right there beside him. But even him talking about doing cultural burns and band members still being afraid. When I interviewed my cat about cultural burning, she's 92 years old. She never practiced cultural burning in her lifetime. She lost that to residential school because we were stopped by legislation. We were thrown in jail, you know, our right was taken away from us by Smokey the Bear. To where even harvesting in a provincial park terrifies my kya because she was chased out by park rangers. So do you think she's going to try to put fire to the ground? I'm trying to practice my rights and title. I'm trying to better the land, but economics, safety, you know, having to jump through government hoops because we have to ask to practice. It's not recognized yet. The reason why I really take a key to the fire now, know it to a T, is because my family, my first family, was taken on me from a house fire. I don't have the brothers and sisters and everything that I used to have, and now it's just kind of like, 
now I have to respect the fire of, okay, this could take you and your other families and the family and the generations to come. So this is what you have to learn. And I've learned it to where, how to start it, watch it, fight fire with fire on the land, knowing your wind direction and the fuel loads and to keep it in the areas that you want and the boundaries that you give it. So for now, they're burning just on the reserve and occasionally also to improve range on adjacent crown land when asked. But there's a lot more work to be done to bring fire, cultural fire, good fire, back to the whole territory. That's why I'm so drawn to fire, to look after the land and the people and to rejuvenate the land so it brings better vegetation for the animals. So it's a big life cycle. If I quit looking after that, it's going to quit looking after me. So that's why I put my time and all my efforts. I'm supposed to be going out to the lake and have fun with everybody, but no, I'm up in the mountains working all the time. And it's like, yeah, I got to go camping. Yeah, you're going camping to go to work to get away from everything, sure. I don't take that time off. If I do take that time off, then I'm losing my connection for what I do to go sit on a lake. I'd rather have that time up here. So, no vacations for Daryl? Definitely no vacations for Daryl. And I took this as a bit of a cue to let him get back to work with his crew. We packed ourselves into Sam's truck to head back down to the valley. And along the way, she had some final thoughts to share with me about what it means to work out on the land. It's a lot of reclaiming that knowledge that we've lost. We have lost a lot of elders and you know, with the residential school, a lot of them had shut down. And I never realized that till really recently, that they just like shut down and they were so insecure with their own culture because they were told, no, that's bad. When you're scared to do it, you're scared to pass that on. But in my generation, I'm noticing a huge thirst for that knowledge. We want to reclaim our culture. We want to relearn it, but we don't have, unfortunately, that direction above us because of the the traumas and the intergenerational trauma that's been passed down to us. So we're healing still. When I started my journey to being sober, I really reconnected to the land and seen its value on my journey, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And I seen how sick it was. And anyone that is pursuing sobriety, I always tell them, you know, you need to go get reconnected with the land. But when this is what they have to reconnect with, it doesn't really build them up. And I had to say that to a lot of people during the fires because, you know, we were hurt. We all ran away to the hills when we were down. We all go hunting. We all go berry picking with our kids or aunties or moms. So when we got to sit there and watch it burn off, it hurt a lot of us mentally and emotionally. And you know, I just had to like, the only thing I could think of was like, it's a phoenix. This had to happen. She's taking back what is hers, but she's going to give us something better. And it's our turn to take care of it better than we have before. Sarah and I said our goodbyes to Sam and her new puppy. And then we headed up Deadman's Creek towards the last stop on our visit. When we come back, I have two more voices to introduce. 
or reintroduce. That's after the break. Wait, quite per Marian Ignatian squaxed, Kalmuheskari, a quill kilket, Elna Elian's quamukuluk, his Jim's stukuluk. Hello, my name is Marian Ignace. My Sakwamuk name is stukuluk. It was given to me by my husband Ron's auntie, the late Mona Jules, and the name that you see on my Email signatures is Gulkilgat, that's my adoptive name, among Haida people, where I started out my research and living in North American indigenous communities many, many years ago. It's hard to overstate Marianne's credentials. She's the director of the Indigenous Languages Program at Simon Fraser University in the Department of Linguistics and Indigenous Studies. She works across BC, the Yukon, and even Southeast Alaska on language documentation and revitalization. Naturally, that work requires Marianne to be a fluent ethnobotanist and ethnoecologist. And this is her husband. I'll turn it over to Ron now to introduce himself. Ron <laughs> My name is Ron Ignace, and my Shushwap name is Smalkan. Ron was the elected chief of the Skeechison Indian Band for over 30 years. In the past, he's served as the chairman of the Shuswap Nation Tribal Council and president of its cultural society. And since 2021, he's served as the very first commissioner of indigenous languages in Canada. For decades, he and Marianne have co-authored books and papers and overseen an academic partnership between Simon Fraser University and the Sequepam Nation. Holy smokes, this, this is a... This is a real power couple. And these are the same folks that we met in the cold open in the last episode, right? Do people know what that is? The, the beginning. Yes, in fact. And the reason that I knew I had to talk to them was because of a paper that they'd recently published with Sarah Dixon Hoyle. Huh. About the concept of walking on two legs. So naturally, I asked them about where this idea came from. We as, as indigenous peoples now are compelled to live in two worlds, basically, you know. My great-grandmother told me, you know, to go out and study the, the white man's world and come back and help your people. When I was going to university, there was the notion that we as Indian people uh, had no history simply because we lived in a, in a circle. Because if you put your finger in one part of a circle and you go all the way around, you wind up back where you were, right? They're saying indigenous people don't occupy time and space and thereby don't have history. And I looked at European history. European history is lineal. It's one big long line from the day that Christ was born to where we are now sitting together here today. And I went back and I studied our stories, our spectacles, our traditional stories. Our elders told us, that's our university, that's our school. There had to be a synthesis. I, I couldn't accept the fact that because of what, listening to our stories, I knew that we had history. And thinking back, 
Ron realized that even though his people's traditional stories tell about life in terms of cycles, that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going in a circle. If you listen more carefully, it's a spiral. And we interact with nature in the process of a dialectical relationship with nature. Nature transforms us and we transform nature within nature, not outside of nature. So that way we evolve and, and have history, occupy time and space. So I'm sitting there with Ron and Marianne in their kitchen, and Ron is telling me this story. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I feel like I've seen this image of the spiral before. Okay. So I asked them about it, and they were like, well, yeah, we, we made an illustration of that spiral, and we put it in a book that we were writing. And then we put it in a paper that we co-authored with Nancy Turner. Nancy Turner. We had her on the show in season one. Yeah, she's an ethnobotanist rock star. I read this paper that they wrote all those years ago. And I swear to God, it's been shaping the way that I think about indigenous knowledge ever since. Like that spiral is lodged in my brain. Wow. And I'm sure I'm not alone. Anyway, Ron and Marianne would keep returning to those traditional stories in their work as a wellspring of ideas. And we started studying our laws. We have Sohuapum laws. Even our own constitution that goes back 5,000 years. And we have uh, Transformer stories. Uh, Mendel, are you familiar with Transformer stories? Not the robot movies. No, not the robot movies. <laughs> okay. Well then, no, I am not. Okay, well, to summarize briefly, if I can... <laughs> Many First Nations have stories of a time when the world was unrecognizable to us today, full of monsters and animals that spoke and walked as humans do. Then came the Transformers, supernatural beings who changed and rearranged things to make them the way that they are today, more or less. On the coast, Raven is often a key Transformer, whereas in the interior, Coyote takes on that role. Transformers utilized their knowledge that they were given from the elders to transform cannibalistic type of animals, transformer animals that caused us harm. And reciprocal accountability and responsibility is all embedded in those stories. But the morals of these stories are not always so easy to reconcile. We have a coyote story that tells us not to copy other people's ways, but that it causes us great harm and grief if we just adopt them and, and take them on unquestionably. And yet there's another story which West Coast Transformers come up after they met up with Coyote and admonished that we should be working together to help each other and to look after each other's interests. To Ron, these stories at first felt contradictory, like, how are we supposed to maintain our own ways and identity, but at the same time interact with and learn from and help other people who have a very different worldview? Right, like there's this one story that tells us not to adopt other people's ways, and then this other story tells us that we need to work together and, and learn from other people. Yeah, and at the same time, here he was, studying his traditional stories and studying in the academy. So in some ways, he was already embodying that contradiction. And then he thought back to residential school, how he and his fellow students would be punished for speaking their language. But... I learned that if I sought in Suwep they couldn't beat me for what I thought. 
And thinking back on those difficult times, he and Marianne realized that, in a similar way, his elders had been hiding their own religion in the church. What do you mean by that? Our people were doing a similar thing in a way because our traditional beliefs, our religious and spiritual beliefs were under severe attack. And Ron could remember his time as a child, sitting on a church pew, listening to his elders sing Shushwap prayers. It dawned on me that a portion of our spiritual belief that we had that was being condemned by the priests were actually being sung and performed in the church without the priest knowing it because they didn't know the language. <laughs> so clearly, one system of knowledge and beliefs could survive even when embedded or hidden within another system of knowledge or beliefs. But you know how there's a lot of discussion right now about integrating indigenous knowledge into the academy and into land management? and I guess into just about everything else. Yeah, it's kind of a recurrent theme on this podcast. Many people have used the terms to integrate indigenous knowledge into Western sciences, but guess who loses out, right? In the process of that, it tends to be indigenous knowledge becoming a footnote or an afterthought, as opposed to having our own validity and purpose and ways of doing things that can make change in the world. So Ron and Marianne get to thinking, well, if you can embed indigenous knowledge into a Western way of thinking, then why not do the reverse? Why not flip that model on its head and say, let's stand on one leg of indigenous knowledge and on one leg of Western science, but we're going to walk with an indigenous heart and mind. And so that's where I began thinking about the strategy of walking on two legs, bringing the two knowledges together without losing yourself, and, but maintaining control over Western knowledge. Because to me, Western science, by and large, is a rogue science. That If you don't manage it and control it, it goes rabid on you. <laughs> and in addition to not having a moral compass, Western science doesn't hold a monopoly on science. Yeah, our elders did scientific experiments and uh, they were not afraid. And in so doing, they, they reached out to, to other forms of knowledge and uh, were utilizing uh, in their own way, walking on two legs. And by bringing in Sarah, we were walking on, on, on her leg. <laughs> <laughs> Four legs. That's so cute. And you know, I, I was actually just thinking that what Sam and Daryl and Sarah are doing out on the land is kind of exactly this, right? Like utilizing some of the tools and trappings of Western science, but moving very deliberately from a place of sequipum values. Yeah, they're doing it on the land and they're doing it in the paper that they wrote. This metaphor of walking on two legs definitely emerges directly from what's going on in Sequepum territory and thought. It's a concept by and for indigenous people who are making use of Western science while also reclaiming their own knowledges. But as a settler, I also took something from the metaphor. Isn't taking stuff kind of 
the meaning of being a settler. <laughs> I can see how I walked right into that. But did you get there on one or two legs? <laughs> okay. Um, what I meant to say was that as a settler working with indigenous people, the idea of walking on two legs says to me that it's probably good to remember that I'm not the protagonist of the story that's unfolding. Right. Yeah, you're, you're part of it. But you're an appendage. Yeah, an appendage. And I'll just go out on a limb here <laughs> and suggest that as an appendage, you really don't want to get out of step with the folks that you're working with. A step behind, okay, a step ahead, maybe, but definitely just one step at a time, walking in the same direction. Hmm. And you probably also want to understand the terrain that you're walking on. Yeah. And in that spirit, I'd actually like to zoom out for a moment and just take in the cumulative impacts that I observed during my short time in Sequepum territory. Like many families, Ron and Marianne were forced to evacuate their homes in both 2017 and 2021. And they've seen the destruction of their territory in real time. We've experienced some really, really profound losses around what's happened to the land. For example, Marianne told me that if you look at the totality of Skeetchison traditional territory, all of the lands where Ron's ancestors lived since time immemorial. 45 or so percent of that has been logged off. Another 40 percent has been seriously harmed by the two wildfires in succession. It, it really means in the end, 15 or so percent of that part of Sequatmoch territory is still in the kind of shape that we want it to be in. And that, to me, is really, really scary. Mm. And, and we've, we've got to do something about it to leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren. Not only is it the forest devastating, when they come by after the forest and they say, oh, we've got to take these, uh, harvest these uh, trees, you know, these burnt trees, uh, which then they go in and rip up the land and further impact the land. And then once those machinery leave, then the second pounding that comes along is the cattle grazing. And what they do is they compact the soil and the soil turns rock hard. And my medicine plants can't grow and, and what's left, the cows eat. So we're, we're really good at compounding destruction on the land, you know? And then on top of that, you add pressure from non-indigenous hunters, from off-road recreational vehicle use, from mining, from agriculture, and famously after wildfires, morel mushrooms come up by the ton and a wave of morel pickers is sure to follow. Right, yeah, I, I'd heard about how many pickers went to Elephant Hill after the fire. It sounded like an absolute gold rush. Mm. I'd heard that Sequepum actually set up a permit system to deal with the crowds of people that were out on the land. Yeah, that permitting system was actually Ron's doing as chief, in partnership with neighboring Sequepum nations. And they felt such a system was called for because, legally, in BC, harvesting in the understory is completely unregulated. And as far as I understand, uh, Western law, wherever there's a vacuum, if someone occupies it, <laughs> your law reigns. <laughs> so Ron thought that the Sequepum might as well implement their own. So we did that. 
and it actually did make a huge difference. And in addition to the permit system, they also created designated campsites for the morel pickers. We took off, what is it, 13,000 liters of human waste off the mountain and 15,000 pounds of garbage that would have been strewn from one end of the mountain to the other. Wow, okay, so, so this was a real innovation in land use and, and it was kind of put in place and guided by community interests. Yeah, I, I think it's actually a great model for how it can be possible to manage the demands on a complex land base like this one. The image I'm getting in my head is, you know, it's really just a landscape that's under incredible human pressure. And then, of course, you add in the climate crisis and these wildfires and the floods, the landslides. These communities keep getting hit and then they're forced to salvage whatever they can in the aftermath. Puts additional pressure on a landscape that's already so heavily impacted. And this is happening every year, all across this territory and across this country, this continent, and the planet as a whole. I mean, what we're seeing unfold in and around Skeechison is a reality that just hasn't come for most of us yet, but is on its way in one form or another. And, you know, you do those immediate things, right? You do the immediate recovery efforts. Yeah. But a lot of that's really just rehabilitation, right? To physical infrastructure, maybe to community infrastructure, but not to the natural infrastructure, not to the ecology, not to the psychic infrastructure. Mm. So that means the real damage still hasn't been addressed. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot to process. So I stepped outside with Sarah and I asked her directly, what does post-disaster recovery really mean in a place like this? I don't know if the disaster is over here, you know? If you're in Vancouver, maybe the disaster is over, the smoke is gone. If you're in BC Wildfire, you're maybe looking at the next disaster. But again, for people who live here, you know, Sam was saying every year when there's floods, the land is being taken back by the river. People often say natural disasters, there's nothing natural about this. You know, it's a hazard event, it's a fire, it's a flood. Uh, maybe these are natural processes, but a disaster is a disaster when it impacts things that we care about, when it impacts people, when it impacts you know, values on the land. And those impacts, the scope and scale of those impacts is not natural. It's due to decisions that have been made over decades, if not centuries. What got us to this point that it became such a disaster and why is it continuing? Well, it's continuing because we keep burning fossil fuels and we keep pushing the land to its absolute limits. We're living in the disaster. I mean, the folks at Skeechison certainly are. And for the most part, the media attention and the funding that descended on these communities in the immediate aftermath of the fires has departed about as quickly as it arrived. So we go on with our lives thinking, maybe, that time heals all wounds. But some of these wounds run really deep. And they're certainly not beyond our ability to help heal. It just seems so clear that we are not investing enough in dealing with the full spectrum of impacts and with the fundamental drivers of those impacts. Yeah. Well, Adam, that's pretty bleak. Honestly, that's the way that I've been feeling lately. 
And that was my experience up there. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But I am holding on to this image that Sam placed in my mind of the phoenix rising from the ashes after the fires. I can see it personified in the Sequepam people, asserting their rights to lead the recovery and restoration of their lands. And as I was standing in Ron and Marianne's backyard, staring out over Dead Man's Creek, Sarah pointed out this beautiful green bend on the edge of the water. So they actually burnt all of this. Ron and his son Joe burnt all of these flats this spring. So they always burn in kind of early spring. So that really green grass down here and across the other side of the river, they lit this whole thing on fire in maybe March sometimes. So when there's still kind of snow up on the hill slopes. Um, yeah, it's come back pretty good. Wow, just burning right along the creek? Yep. I think it was Joe's first time doing like a big burn. So yeah, Ron was showing him the ropes. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, it was just gorgeous. And you'd never know that they'd burned it earlier that year. And then Sarah pointed over to this little rise of land right next to the house. There is this line as clear as day where the burned area stops and the unburned area begins. You can see these bright green colors of crested wheatgrass and brome, these introduced pasture grasses. And there's this really striking line as you look up to this dry hillside. And on the burn side of the line, there's native bunchgrass prairie with these cultural keystone species and wildflowers. I mean, it's just extraordinary. If you come here maybe a few months earlier, you know, just after they burned, it would have been this sea of beautiful yellow bells, this beautiful yellow lily, which is a cultural keystone plant for the Sequatin. And on the side that they don't burn, introduced pasture grasses and weeds. It was just an incredible and unmistakable difference. So yeah, it's really, really striking. I've never seen a line like this, and this has really been maintained by the burning that Ron's been doing every year for the past, you know, 10, 15 years. What I heard and taught from my great-grandparents, we had gardens down here in the valley bottom that we tilled and planted and weeded, but we also had other gardens in the mountains that we, we went and tended to and looked after. And when we got back here and moved to this place, I, I remember that we got to know that the wind at a certain time would blow up the valley and at certain times of the day it would switch and blow down. And so uh, I said, we're going to try to experiment here and use fire to see if we can heal our land. Because for a long time I had a whole host of knapweed and such uh, invasive species here. And at first there, you know, I said, I was paying the kids uh, uh, 10 cents a napweed. You go out and pull a napweed, I'll pay you 10 cents. I almost went broke. <laughs> then I said, reduce it to 5 cents. And then, then finally I said, no, we're going to go back the old traditional way and we're going to use fire. And, and uh, we did for, what, about 15 years. I would set a fire out here in one end, uh, time of the day and switch it around and start a fire in the other part and then the, the wind would bring them together and put it out and one day we went out behind the house and uh, Marianne came rushing back in and said, hey, there's Tsavalia growing out here. And we found that also Kokila, which is a, a story plant. Those are two keystone plants that hadn't grown on this mound for a hundred years. And standing there, staring at that solid line between 
restoration on one side and neglect on the other. It was as good a reminder as I've ever had that transformation is always possible. We have uh, one great word that I like to say to people and give them an idea of what our thought processes are. And that word is tulth. Uh, that was one of the first few words that Coyote uttered when he came down. Uh, and the definition of that word is the ability for one to utilize their energy to transform matter. And that, that word ripples through all our transformer stories coming down and we've learned a lot of ways on how to live on the land to deploying that, you know. We understood uh, from the beginning uh, of our time, I believe, that how the whole universe worked was from energy into matter and matter back into energy. And we learned from that. And we're keeping that tradition and revive it, revitalize our traditional knowledge of ways of living and hopefully to create a better life for our children and our people. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced and hosted by Mendel Skolsky and myself, Adam Huggins. It features the voices of Sam Draney, Daryl Peters, Marianne Ignace, Ron Ignace, and Sarah Dixon-Hoyle, with music by Thumbbug, Spencer W. Stewart, and Sunfish Moon Light. Big thanks to Lux Meteora for the cover artwork, which is a lovely diptych for both episodes in this miniseries. Thanks also to Isla Takanaka and Ava Stanley, who interned with us for this episode, and to Sarah Dixon-Hoyle for inviting me to visit the interior. You can find links, citations, and a transcript for this episode, plus photos from my road trip to Cache Creek and Skeechison at futureecologies.net. Finally, this independent, ad-free podcast was made possible by the support of our wonderful community on Patreon. To get early episode releases, bonus behind-the-scenes content, and our lovely Discord server, join us at patreon.com slash futureecologies. If you can't support us financially, write us a review. And keep sharing us with your friends. That's really how this show gets around, and we really appreciate all of you who take the time to recommend us to others. You know who you are. All right, until next time, thank you for listening.